0: Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and I am so grateful for all the comments you've left on the last two videos. There have been more than ever, and I've read every single one, because I want to get a sense of where everybody's coming from. Uh, The last one was our introductory lesson for the Book of Mormon, and I am thrilled at how excited you all are to dive into this keystone scripture. The one before that was a brief Unshaken update episode, where I talked about some of the changes we're making, and I was really curious to see what your reactions would be. So thank you for weighing in on that. There was a lot of weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth over shorter episodes because you'll miss the verse-by-verse approach. And believe me, I'm with you. I get it. Some of that weeping and wailing was my own. I love going as slow as possible and savoring every sentence. I love ignoring the clock on the wall. I've never been able to teach like that. And so to be able to do that with you has been an absolute thrill. And if I were retired and an empty nester, I would continue that and probably intensify it. We'd be having 10 hour a week lessons in the Book of Mormon. And believe me, this book deserves it. But I still have a fuller than full-time job. And I have a wife and children who deserve a lot more of my time than I've given them the last four years. So thank you for being Patient with me and rolling with the punches, thank you for the other side of the issue where many of you have chimed in and said, "Ah, hallelujah, shorter lessons. I might actually be able to keep up with you from now on. Or I can finally share your videos with confidence because I'm not going to scare off my friends with a four-hour lesson. So what is bad news for one group is good news for another, and that's usual in, in society. So perhaps in the spirit of Zion, one group can take a hit if it benefits another group and we can all become one heart and one mind through it all. Now, with this being a new year of study, though, I did want to give you just, I, I'm, I'm still aiming for that hour mark. It probably take me a couple of weeks to get used to it and shorten things. So this one might be a little longer, but. I wanted to spend at least a few minutes at the beginning laying out some possibilities for your year of Scripture study. Okay? We're still early on in January, and so you can make some changes or, or decisions if you'd like. This is the time of New Year's resolutions. In fact, uh, right now for me, as I film, this is it's December 31st. This is New Year's Eve, and if you hear some sounds uh, in the background, it might be fireworks going off. I really hope to finish this before this, the, the clock strikes 12. But... This is the time of year where we start making plans and, and deciding on goals and what will my, my approach to scripture study be this year. So, I wanted to give you a few possibilities. There are two main approaches to scripture one is a sequential scripture study, and the other is a topical. Sequential goes in sequence. You start in 1 Nephi and you plow through Moroni 10 and you read the whole book in you know, turning pages just in one direction. That's the way Come Follow Me is set up complete with weekly deadlines of where you're supposed to be to stay on, on the same page as the rest of the church. There are wonderful pros to that, but there are also some cons. The best thing about sequential is it keeps the storyline moving. Okay? And so if you've never read the Book of Mormon before, I would highly recommend following the regular sequential approach. Having deadlines and a, a reading schedule is super helpful with that too because it, it keeps you moving and gets you to the end. So again, if you've never finished the Book of Mormon, let this be your year. Okay, pile through the Isaiah chapters. We can do it. Now, the other approach, though, is a topical approach. And with topical, you, you don't worry about the sequence. You're jumping all over the place, but you've picked a specific subject, and you're trying to understand from the, all the standard works, what does God have to say about that? Uh, I wouldn't recommend that for, if you've never read it start to finish, because you'll the, the story won't make any sense, because you're not in it. But if you've read enough, if you read the Book of Mormon enough times that you've that you understand the story, man, sequential or topical scripture study is life changing. Where you pick something that's on your mind, or pray for the Spirit's direction on what you should do, and and then start in the topical guide and find a passage, and then follow its footnotes and check its cross references and brainstorm where else you can go, and it's exhilarating. You learn a ton about that topic. There are ways to combine the two, by the way where you can do a sequential study, but pick a topic that you're looking for the whole way through. In fact, speaking of New Year's Eve, uh, this was one maybe 20 years ago. And my wife, it was New Year's Eve, just like now for me. And my wife turned to me and said, Honey, I just read the coolest thing about this general authority. He did this thing called the Book of Mormon Marathon. I'm like, really? What, what, What was that? And she said, well, he read the Book of Mormon every month for a year. So 12 times in one year and picked a different topic each time. I was like, wow, that sounds really cool. And then I wasn't, I was kind of, I thought the conversation was done. But then my wife, knowing exactly what she was doing, she said to me almost like offhand, she's like, yeah, that is amazing. I mean, you could never do that. And I, that's the competitive nature in me. I must have been slacking off in my scriptures. And she's like, you know, I need a more spiritual husband. I know what'll work. Uh, and so she dropped that, threw down that gauntlet. And I said, well, I know what I'm starting tomorrow. And sure enough, that year, every month, I would buy myself a new, cheap Book of Mormon, uh, missionary edition, and then decide, okay, this time through, I want to study faith. And I'd write faith in the, in, the, in the front cover, and then mark everything I could find that year, or excuse me, that month on faith. It became my faith volume. And then the next month, I'd, get a, I'd make a repentance volume. And the next month, I had an atonement volume or a tender mercies edition of the Book of Mormon. It was an amazing 12 months. It's a lot of reading. It's about 17 pages a day, but it was, it was a life changer for me. There is, in fact, one other Christmas, excuse me, New Year's Eve. I thought, what do I want to do next year uh, for my scripture study? And that time I thought, you know, I love all the standard works, but I tend to do them one at a time and they never get to come into conversation with each other. What if I mapped out how much I would have to read of each book in the standard works to finish them all in one calendar year? And I made a big spreadsheet. In fact, I'm happy to share it with you if you're interested. I can include the link to download it uh, in the the video description. But it was January 1st. I started Genesis 1, Matthew 1, 1 Nephi 1, Doctrine and Covenants 1, and Moses 1. And read read all the standard works that year in a way that they all informed one another. It was a cloud of witnesses like I would never experienced. It was one great whole when it comes to Scripture. And that was amazing too. I did that several years in a row. Uh, whatever your approach might be this year, however you decide to do it, uh, one other way to see it is you can read very fast or you can read very slow, or you can do both. The fast version has its benefits because you see big picture. Uh, I call it the flyover. You're at the 30,000 foot uh, range and you're, and you're skimming over giant sections of text and seeing big picture. From that altitude, you can see the lay of the land in ways that you never would at ground level. You can see how deep the mountain range goes and where the river comes through it. But you have no idea what kinds of plants are down there. For that, you need to go slow. For that, you need the nature hike approach. And there you can count the petals on the flowers and identify what kinds of trees. You just lose the view of the, the lay of the land. Okay? You can't get both. Whatever you get out of one approach, you're not going to get out of the other and vice versa. And so sometimes it's a matter of repeating them and doing both of them in some way to try to get the best of both. Next semester in my BYU classes, I'll be teaching a course called Teachings and Doctrines of the Book of Mormon. I just finished a sequential study of the Book of Mormon with my students. Now I'm doing a topical study and each week we'll have a a different subject and we'll be able to talk about the Atonement, for example, with the help of King Benjamin and Abinadi and Alma and Samuel Lamanite and Jesus himself, all at the same time. It's an exhilarating way to study scripture. In fact, to get ready for it, I thought I want to to reread the Book of Mormon in a flyover approach to be able to identify places on with different topics that are worth exploring with my classes. And so, over the past week, I reread the Book of Mormon and it was amazing. I'm not I'm not saying this to try to pat myself on the back. You you can do the same yourself. But it was first Nephi in one day and second Nephi the next day and it was it was we were flying. And over the course of the last seven days, to reread the text was, I'm, I'm so filled with, with testimony of this incredible book of Scripture. It is an absolute masterpiece of truth. And to have just a storyline came out loud and clear, to see these threads of, of doctrine that run throughout the text... Uh, where certain things are emphasized, and then where they kind of you lose sight of them, only to reappear later on in the book. Absolutely amazing week that I've been able to spend in the scriptures. Uh, but that that is the fast approach. The slow approach is again where you savor every word, and you look up definitions, and you think hard, and you mark things, and you ponder, and take notes in, in your own scripture journal to be able to record the, the the impressions that come. There are pros and cons to both. I would actually. Let me put it this way, uh, and then we'll dive into the text. I know we're getting antsy. Uh, at least I am. The to to switch the metaphor. Instead of flying over and then hiking through, imagine a three three different approaches. There's the water skiing, the snorkeling, and the scuba diving. Okay, and again, it's in order of how. What, what are you? Are you focusing on breadth or depth? With a water skiing, I mean, you're just flying all over the, the lake. you got a motorboat in front of you. But it's only surface level. For that, perhaps you would simply skim over the text. Or maybe you even just read the chapter headings. This week, for example, we will study 1 Nephi 1-5. through And with a, a water skiing approach, maybe you just read the, the five chapter headings and go, Okay, I think I remember these stories. Maybe you start to look for an overarching theme. For example, in this one, chapter one, you'll see that Nephi starts to write a book. Lehi is given a book to read in vision. Chapter three and four, the boys are sent back to Jerusalem to obtain a book. And chapter five, Lehi searches that book from the beginning. You're starting to see a theme in these preliminary chapters? In some ways, the Book of Mormon is a book, it begins as a book about books and their importance. And so think about that on the the surface level approach where, man, this keeps coming up and what I've got a book in my hands as we speak. The Book of Mormon. Is it a gift from God? Is it worth all kinds of personal sacrifice to obtain it in the right way? Can I search it and find it to be of great worth? Will my own insights be worth recording alongside them? There's a great line in 1 Nephi 1 where Nephi says, I have made these plates with mine own hands. And this set of scriptures, this is a book I have made with mine own hands. Not the paper and print, but all the underlines and the shading and the writing in the margin and the circling words and connecting to other things. And this is an irreplaceable book of scripture for me. It is mine. I have made it with mine own hands. And so... Oh, that first approach, hmm, I'm starting to see some things in the big picture of these first five chapters. Now, part, one, of, one of the things that's important to do while you water ski is look for places that are worth snorkeling in. Places where you're not going to have the same breadth as before, but man, you can start to get to better depth. There's some, there, there was this area, this little cove, it just seemed like that might be a place worth exploring more. So ditch the boat and get out and start looking beneath the surface. For that one, that might be, it's still fairly fast. Maybe that's a, let's read the actual text, but do it fast enough that I understand the storyline. If I stop at every verse and look up things and check stuff out, I'm going to lose track of the story. So maybe a second version of this, the snorkeling approach, is let me read it all the way through and understand the storyline as it's going through. Uh, I, I, as I do so, I can identify places that I really want to stop and dive as deeply as possible with my scuba gear. For example, with this one, maybe I'm reading 1 Nephi 1, and I realize, man, the way Lehi learns from the Lord is really inspiring. It seems like it goes back and forth between the two of them. I want, I want to understand that better, because I want to learn from the Lord better myself. When I get to chapter 2, I start seeing, oh, the family members, and what makes Laman and Lemuel the way they are compared to Nephi and Sam? In my own family, are there some interesting dynamics I've got to wrestle with, and maybe this is a good place to study how do you do that with a mixed-faith family, for example, and some children who believe and others who don't? That's a very relevant topic, unfortunately, in our day. When you get to 3 and 4 and you see Nephi obtaining the plates, that's a, such a famous story. But is there, are there things there worth diving deeper and understanding what's going on in Nephi's mind and heart that allow him to do the unthinkable? How does he, is he rationalizing? Is he justifying? Is he, how does this work? How do you convince yourself to do hard things? Hmm, that might be worth exploring. When you get to chapter 5 and you see Lehi and Sariah with friction... This is the the first marriage in the Book of Mormon and it's not perfect? Huh. That's comforting. (laughs) And to realize, how can I learn, what can I learn from this amazing couple? Goodly parents, Nephi tells us, but had some friction and how do they navigate that? I'd love to learn that. So that's something, that's a place I want to explore more deeply. So when you're water skiing, look for places to snorkel. And when you're snorkeling, look for places to scuba dive. There might be a, a sunken ship, and I want to explore every, every nook and cranny. There might be a, oh, a, a coral reef teeming with life. Uh, in our Old Testament year, I talked about burning bushes. Remember when, when Moses saw one and turned aside to see? He stopped what he was doing, realized that deserves greater attention. And the text says that when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, that's when he spoke to him. When you are studying your Book of Mormon this year, if you're trying to keep up with Come Follow Me, fantastic. If you're trying to meet deadlines and whatever, but even if you're just doing a a water skiing or snorkeling run through it, mark the places that give off a godly glow. Mark places. I I, want to keep the storyline in my mind, so I'm going to keep reading through, but I'm marking something. This verse I've got to come back to. There's something here I know the Lord wants to teach me and then pull out the scuba gear and pause and look things up and write things down and you'll be amazed at how much the lord is willing to teach you. In fact, let's practice that with 1st Nephi chapter 1, verse 1. I know you've read this before, probably countless times as you try to build up enough momentum to push yourself through the Isaiah chapters, okay? We always come back and try to start over. But if we scuba dive here, savor every word and see what it might teach us. He begins, I, Nephi, and we've got to stop there. Uh, you can, well, we've got only two words so far, but there are, maybe I could even say this. There are two different approaches to scripture study when it comes to devotional versus academic. Some people want to study scripture from an intellectual standpoint. I want to understand the history or the archaeology or the semantics or the literary structure. Awesome. The Book of Mormon, particularly, will lend itself to a very deep, deep, rich intellectual study others are far more devotional and and I just want to feel things I want to have the spirit confirm truth, I want to see myself in the text and understand what principles I should follow well in some ways those first two words give me both options the I word I've always been struck by how, how to begin conversations or how to start books of scripture in Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth John built on that in John 1 in the beginning was the word The first word of the Doctrine and Covenants is my favorite. Hearken. God is trying to get our attention after 1800 years of silence. And for the Book of Mormon to begin with a simple personal pronoun, I. But it struck me one year where I was pondering that. And then it dawned on me that by the time you end the Book of Mormon, go look at the last three or four verses of Moroni 10. And the word Christ or God appear, if I remember correctly, like 14 times. And it struck me on a personal level that when I start the Book of Mormon, I I typically approach it in a rather self-centered way. It's all about me and where am I and what are my concerns and what am I going to do in life? But if you'll just study God's word and let it work on you, by the time you are done, you are no longer self-centered you are focused on the Savior. There there is a change that this book will will work in you if you let it. That's just the I. The Nephi side of things, I don't know anything about him yet if this is my first time through the book. But what's amazing, Nephi, this is, let me say this, there is a need to understand historical context. We'll get a clue of that in just a moment in verse 4. But, to understand that this is a family that lives in Jerusalem in 600 BC. Hebrew would have been their language. Uh, probably some Egyptian influence, since that's a world superpower at the time. Though Babylon is pushing back and trying to take over the, the, the world. Now, to think about Nephi, in the Old Testament, there is actually a Hebrew word called Nephilim. It shows up in Genesis, and it means giants. Giants. And I'm fascinated by the fact that Nephi later describes himself as a man who was large in stature. Makes you wonder, was he born a big baby? And Sarai was like, whoo, what are we going to name this little giant? Oh, that works. How about we'll take Nephilim and we'll just shorten it. We'll call him Nephi, a little giant. Was this a mother and father that hoped their son would grow to be a spiritual giant? If so, it worked. Oh, he lived up. He grew up into his name and again that there's a little hebrew hint there in the second word of the book of mormon years before joseph smith ever started studying hebrew himself okay there's some fascinating hebraisms here but to think of i nephi having been born of goodly parents and when i read that for years i always thought oh yeah these are good parents this is these are honorable this is an honorable mother and father doing the very best and i'm sure that's the case But one of the benefits of the Book of Mormon being translated in 1829 and published in 1830 is that it came right on the heels of the very first American dictionary in 1828. You can Honestly, I would go search for 1828 dictionary and then uh, bookmark that page. Because when you look for words in the Book of Mormon, if there's a word that gives off the godly glow, if that's your burning bush, It's interesting to look it up in the 1828 Dictionary to see what would that word have meant for Joseph Smith as he's searching for language to translate what's on the gold plates. We don't have a dictionary of Reformed Egyptian. Uh, There are places in Scripture you can find the English word, then look for it in the Bible, and then look for the Hebrew and Greek behind it. Uh, Bible Hub is an amazing tool that I turn to all the time to look up Hebrew and Greek originals behind the words that we have in the Bible. Uh, we, we can't do that with the Book of Mormon, but in a way you can, right? You can go back, like I said, look at Hebrew and Greek for the same word. And from a translation perspective, go back to the 1828 dictionary. So when in, for that word goodly, in Joseph Smith's day, it meant this. Here's the definition from Webster. Being of a handsome form, beautiful, graceful, as a goodly person, or goodly raiment, or goodly houses, Now, with those latter definitions, it suggests that Lehi and Sarai must have been fairly well off. They were goodly parents in terms of the goods of the world. To think about what they're going to have to give up as they head off into the unknown. To see what Laman and Lemuel are leaving behind and why they would be so angry about it. Uh, The kind of Worldliness and materialism that was seeping into Judaite society to the point that prophets would have to come and cry repentance. Uh, these this is a fairly well-off family. Uh, some have suggested even if you want to again take the scholarly route that for Lehi to be well-educated, to be able to write, to have to raise a son who's well-educated enough to write as well, were they well enough off? Was he a wealthy oh trader, for example, a merchant? If he's heading off into the wilderness and seems to be okay with that, is he familiar with the trade routes? If his Hebrew is going to now become reformed Egyptian, has he been trading with the Egyptians? There's some fascinating backstory that we can try to recreate with words like goodly. Now, because of their goodliness, read the next line, therefore I was taught somewhat in all the learning of my father. And that therefore, is there it is, consequentially, as a result, because of the fact my parents were goodly, I could be taught. They could afford to give me an education. I wasn't some kind of day laborer out in the fields just trying to survive from day to day. No, I could get an education. I could learn to write. I could learn to record truth in scripture. I could read the brass plates. He was taught somewhat in all the learning of his father. And I'm interested in that somewhat and that all. As a parent myself who wishes I could teach my children everything I know, I can't. But I can teach them somewhat of all. It can be a broad-based, rounded-out education. I can try to teach my children to be Renaissance men and women and give them a little bit of this and a little bit of that in hopes that they will continue learning on their own. That was the case with Nephi. And then one of my favorite lines He says, having seen many afflictions in the course of my days, nevertheless, having been highly favored of the Lord in all my days. And that's such an interesting combination. Wait a minute. I thought you said you had many afflictions. Well, yeah, I did. And that's interesting considering how goodly his background was. Oh, you can't buy yourself out of all earthly trials. And especially moving forward in life, we're going to see how many of those afflictions Nephi had to deal with. But despite the fact he had many afflictions, he felt highly favored of the Lord. That should tell us something about his attitude in adversity. And the presence of trials doesn't mean the absence of God. That's so key for us to keep in mind when we're going through our periods of many afflictions. Can I still see God's hand? In fact, maybe that's the best time to see it because I'm coming to know him in my extremities. He then says in the last line, Yea, having had a great knowledge of the goodness and the mysteries of God, and pause there, because I love the difference of those two side by side. I'm learning God's mysteries. That seems to be more of a head approach. But I'm learning his goodness, and that seems to be more of a heart approach. If you think about the two famous trees in the Garden of Eden, One was life and love. The other was knowledge. And to think of the mysteries of God as if he were partaking of that fruit of the tree of knowledge. And the goodness of God. Oh, I'm partaking of the fruit of the tree of life. So much of our life will be spent trying to balance those two. There's a contrary in my mind in that very first verse of the Book of Mormon. And perhaps... Perhaps you're the type that has spent all your life feasting upon God's goodness. That's a natural gift for those with soft hearts. Maybe this time through, you lean more in the direction of the mind and think harder about the scriptures so that God can reveal some of his mysteries to you. Meanwhile, those of you that are on the more intellectual side of things and have always approached the Book of Mormon seeking an understanding of his mysteries, maybe this time you lean in the direction of his goodness, and allow your heart to have pride of place in this year's study of Scripture. Whichever side both trees are worth eating from, and Nephi seemed to make fruit salad every time he approached things in life, goodness and mysteries, and therefore, he concludes, I make a record of my proceedings in my days. I love that he saw that his life was worth recording, and so is yours. As you go through a life coupling affliction and the goodness of God being favored of him as you combine goodness and mysteries learning head and heart write things down they will show that will show God how much you value the things that he's teaching you and leading you through Okay. That, that's just one example of what you can do in verse after verse after verse in your study of the Book of Mormon. That was some scuba diving. And I'm sure there's still more reefs to explore even in that one verse. Okay. But bit with that, let's move forward and start doing a little more water skiing and, and snorkeling with plenty of opportunity to scuba dive as we go. Okay. Now, one of the other things I need you to look for in your scriptures, and I don't know which version, if you'll do this in your snorkeling or your scuba diving or or just in your water skiing, is look for any clues as to context so you see where these stories come together. If you can get a big picture of like, here's the skeleton of the story, then what part are we attaching these these narratives to? And we get a clue in chapter one, verse four, when it says that Lehi lived in Jerusalem, and it was during the first year of the reign of King Zedekiah. So now we have geography and history coming together, the place, the time. And that, that means everything. As we start the story, it's about 600 BC and it's in Jerusalem. So this family of the house of Israel, in fact, we'll find out later that Lehi comes from the tribe of Manasseh. That's an interesting one. Some skeptics have said, well, Joseph Smith must have not clued into the reality that if this is 600 B.C. Jerusalem, there's nobody from Manasseh there. The northern kingdoms have already been uh, scattered. The, The lost tribes included the tribe of Manasseh. So 120 years ago, this is our Old Testament review, 120 years ago, the Assyrian Empire came and destroyed everything. They took the northern tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel, and scattered them across the empire. There you get the lost tribes. But those skeptics who say the Book of Mormon can't be true, because why would Lehi, a Manassehite, be in Jerusalem? Well, go back and reread the Old Testament, where it says that during that time period, some of the most faithful people of the northern kingdom moved down to Jerusalem because a temple was there. So I picture Lehi's ancestors being strong enough in the faith that they're not, they're not going to follow the idolatry of Jeroboam. No, they're going to go where the temple is. And so this little gathering to the house of God while the rest of the tribes are being scattered by the Assyrians. That was 120 years ago. Now it's 600 BC and the Babylonian Empire is on the rise. To the point that they're going to come and take over everything and destroy Jerusalem. That's what these prophets are prophesying about. This is where Jeremiah comes onto the scene. Ezekiel's going to be carried captive back to Babylon and be the prophet in exile. Daniel's already been taken uh, because the Babylonians want to Babylonify the rising generation. It makes me wonder if Nephi felt left out. Like, why didn't I get picked? Did you not see any potential in me? I'm a giant, a spiritual giant here. What are you talking about? But no, he, he was passed over by the Babylonians. To think about this time period where prophets are crying repentance, but the Jerusalemites feel like they're strong enough to handle anything. They're opposing Jeremiah and anybody that sides with him. But Babylon is waiting in the wings to come and destroy that precious temple and drag everyone back to Babylon to be an exile. A, a, A scattering, similar to the scattering of the northern kingdoms, And what's going to happen to this little family of Lehi's as they are scattered themselves? There's a lot of historical context that really sets the stage. This is an amazing time period to begin this book of Scripture. And for us to begin our study of it, is Babylon too much with us? Are we too drawn by the wicked world? How do we respond when prophets cry repentance? Am I so full of myself that I don't think any bad consequences can come to worldly sin? Do I think I can handle things on my own? Am I in goodly circumstances to the point that I feel like I've got buffered, I'm buffered from any kinds of negative things out there? Well, how are we going to respond when God begins to speak to us? And thus we begin the Book of Mormon. Now, I want to give you a big picture Kind of snorkel through First Nephi. But point out some places that might be of great benefit as you study it more deeply on your own. Because I have never seen a single chapter in Scripture that does a better job of illustrating the process of learning to learn from the Lord. It almost seems to be a tag team approach between God and Lehi. And what I've learned from this is that in this particular classroom, the student controls the bell the student gets to decide when the lesson is over. And unfortunately, the professor then has to close the book and leave. And that's usually the case with spiritual things. God is content to teach us as long as we like. And it's usually we who give up on the lesson early. So pay close attention to how it all begins. You meet Lehi. As was said, he spent his whole life living in Jerusalem. But then it says in that year... There came many prophets into Jerusalem crying repentance. you got to change or Babylon's going to destroy us all. Now, like I said, Jeremiah would have been one of them. He wasn't from Jerusalem. He was just outside in a town called Anathoth. But for him to come in, we start to see that. Uh, what's interesting to me in 1 Nephi 1, the chapter begins, I don't think Lehi's a prophet. I always just assumed that like, oh yeah, he's the first prophet in the Book of Mormon. But the book begins with him Listening to the prophets, not being one of them. So picture how this works. He's probably a merchant. Fairly, he's well off. He's got his family, just living his life. We'll see in a moment that he feels very... He, he loves his fellow Jerusalemites. They calls them, he calls them his people. So maybe he's a little blind to the problems that are, that are taking place in town. Maybe he's... How... Oh, been protected somewhat if you want to call that because of his wealth or maybe that wealth has just blinded him to the needs of people all around him I don't know enough about the details on that but it does seem that he's just there hearing when the prophets come but then notice what he does and this is where the tag team lesson begins God initiates things he sends his prophets with a message to repent now it's Lehi's turn how are you going to respond to it and as you read this yourself, pay close attention to how Lehi responds to every opportunity to learn from the Lord. The first time when he hears the prophets, he must have believed enough to begin to pray on behalf of his people. With all his heart, in fact. This is a sensitive soul. He loves his fellow man right there in Jerusalem. But he re- something strikes a chord. He knows these prophets are right. We are not living The law of Moses, we're not doing what we're supposed to do. We have to change or we will suffer the consequences. And believing in God's justice, the consequences will come. But trusting in God's mercy, he prays to God with all his heart. Now it's God's turn. How will he respond to that prayer of faith on Lehi's part? Keep reading. And what do you see God do next? He appears to Lehi in a pillar of fire. Pillar of fire? Think Exodus. It was the pillar of fire that brought the house of Israel out of a a land doomed to destruction to get them through their wilderness toward a promised land. Are we starting to see hints of what lies ahead for Lehi already? Now, God begins to teach Lehi through this. He says that he saw and heard much, which means it's now Lehi's turn. Turn. What are you going to do with this lesson you've just received? Well, it says that he was overcome by the spirit of it all. He didn't just shrug it off and go, well, I I accepted the prophets, I gave my token prayer. It's like, no, God is teaching me things and I am overwhelmed by them. He goes home and casts himself on his bed because he's so overwhelmed by the spirit. Do you remember last week in uh, in our introduction lesson when we saw the angel Moroni visit the young Joseph and what's Joseph do? He meditates and marvels and muses And Moroni comes back to continue the lesson. Well, there's Lehi's version of all of that kind of response. And what does God do? He gives Lehi a vision. He wants to keep teaching and you're ready for it, obviously. And in this vision, he sees God. He sees Jesus Christ descend from heaven. He sees Christ choose 12 apostles and send them forth. One of whom comes to Lehi with a book. You see what he's doing? It's like, Lehi, you still want to learn? We're in the midst of this visionary experience. You are seeing, you are hearing, but now read. And what will you do? It's now Lehi's turn. Ball's in his court. And what does he do? He reads and is filled with the spirit. How, oh, in fact, what does he do with that feeling? Keep reading yourself and you will see his response as one of gratitude and great Praise. He is effusive in his praise of God. And when we thank God for the things that he's teaching us, you better believe he'll want to continue the lesson. And so he continues to pour out truth upon Lehi. And Lehi soaks it all up. In fact, as he continues to learn, he then goes forth. Well, two things. He writes down these things. And do we? Do we record the things that God is teaching us? Because if we do, we are proving to him that we value. We're hanging on every word. We're going to treasure it to the point of preserving it. Lehi does that. He also goes forth and begins to preach it to the people. No matter what the consequences might be. And as a result, God continues to teach him. In fact, by the time you get to chapter 2, he's teaching him about getting his family and leaving off to go out into the wilderness. That I know, I'm grateful you're praying with all your heart on behalf of your people. But they're not as receptive to the Spirit as you are. You kept the lesson alive throughout the entire first chapter. Back and forth, back and forth. I teach, you learn. I teach more. You soak it in. You thank me for it. You praise me for it. You write it down. You teach it to the people. Of course I'm going to keep flooding you with revelation. But most people aren't like you, Lehi. Most people cut the lesson short before it even began. When I sent prophets to cry repentance, they utterly refused. So they rang the bell and class was over. But not you. No wonder I taught you through the whole chapter. And by the end of the chapter, I'm giving you another lesson. It's personal. It's sacrificial. It's gather your family and leave. Because this wicked world is no place for you or for them. So go out into the wilderness. And that pillar of fire will eventually bring you to a new promised land of your own. Trust me now like Moses trusted me then. It's your turn to go. And what does Lehi do? It's his turn on the lesson. He obeys. He acts on the revelation he receives. And thus the lesson will continue through the rest of 1 Nephi and into 2 Nephi. Like I said, Lehi is one of my favorite examples of someone who learns how to learn from the Lord. Now, if I can tell you a story here from my own personal experience. Because part of Scripture is, yes, to know their story, but part of it is to infuse that story into your own. And again, you could think... I honestly wonder if Joseph Smith saw himself here, because the parallels are incredible, about someone who's hearing... Words, messages from God. Isn't sure what to do. He starts to pray. He has a vision. He's given a book. He preaches about it. It causes incredible persecution to come upon him. He moves from place to place. I mean, the parallels between Lehi and Joseph Smith are incredible. But what about the parallels between Lehi and you or me? Do I, what do I do with prophetic messages? Do I pray about them? Do I allow the Holy Ghost to come upon me? Do I go home and cast myself on my bed and think about these things long enough that my eyes can open to spiritual realities I otherwise wouldn't see? When I'm given a book and we've got one right here in our hands before us, what do I do with it? Do I read? Do I praise? Do I write? Do I share? Do I obey? Anyway, years ago, I was teaching a seminary class. It was Book of Mormon year. And I wanted, this is what I wanted to teach them from 1 Nephi chapter 1, what I just shared with you. I also wanted to spend some time teaching them about the wilderness and what that means. Because these were teenagers and they're caught up in their world. But missionaries go to a wilderness before they serve, it's called the MTC. Joseph Smith went out into a wilderness called the Sacred Grove. Jesus Christ went out into the wilderness when he was tempted of the devil before his ministry began. The pioneers went through their wilderness toward Utah. Life seems to present us with all kinds of wilderness moments that hopefully prepare us for what's to come. Well, I wanted to share that with my students, but I didn't want to do it on the first day. The first day, I just wanted to get to know my, my, my students and try to connect with them. And so we went through kind of each row and they told me their names and a little about themselves and so on. Great, great kids, wonderful teenagers, until it got to the very last one. And there was a young man who had kind of oh, slinked into class a little bit late. Uh, he had a, a bright, I remember this, he had a bright pink fanny pack. He had a Megadeth hat on with like hair coming out from underneath it in all directions. And he came in late and slumped down in the seat in the very back corner as far away from me as he could get. And I could just sense from him, I don't want to be here. I mean, he was oozing opposition. and like, I dare you to make me spiritual. Well, we went through all the students. I finally got to him. I'm like, hey, welcome to class. What's your name? And he just scowled at me and he said, FX20. Just made up like he was some kind of robot. And there was some kind of nervous giggling among the other students, like, <laughs> how's this new teacher going to react to this? And I just, I just rolled with it. I'm like, hey, you want to have fun with me? I'll have fun with you. That's fine. I was like, oh, FX20. Great to have you. You look so lifelike, so human. Uh, I've never seen a cyborg quite so well designed. We're honored to have you. Uh, unfortunately, as I'm looking down the roll, I don't see your name or your serial number, whatever that is. I don't see it here. Um so I'm going to have to write it in. I just want to make sure I get it right. Do you do you write the numbers 20 or do you spell it out T W E N T Y? And he got a little uncomfortable cuz I was engaging with him. He's like, "Uh uh just the numbers?" I'm like, "Got it. FX20." Oh, what well, what about the FX? Is that just like big capital FX or do you spell that out cursive, you know, like E F F E C S? And again, he scowled and said, "Just the just the letters." I'm like, "Got it. F x 20 hyphenated yeah okay great oh you know um since we have a robot among us can you do and then i started making up these weird robotic capabilities like can you do this and can you do that and by now the other students are kind of laughing on my side and this this student was feeling more and more uncomfortable he's like no i i, I can't do any of those things and i just said oh that's too bad that comes out in the fx30 huh you're one of those older models huh ah, bummer that's okay maybe an upgrade Uh, What about, and we were just going back and forth, and he was hating this. And so I finally said, you know, FX, um, I'm just wondering, did your engineers ever give you a more human-sounding name? And by then, he was ready to wave the white flag, and he just said, Todd. (laughs) Oh, great to have you, Todd. And checked off the roll. Now, thankfully, he came back the next day. I I was worried I might have pushed him too far. But he came back the next day, where we did start talking about Book of Mormon. And we read, we studied 1 Nephi chapter 1 and 2. Where we talked about Lehi learning from the Lord. Everything I just shared with you, going verse by verse. And then talked about the wilderness. And what that meant to be away from the wicked world so you could come to be with God. Now, I had no idea what was happening in FX20's Mind and Heart. But after a couple of weeks, he came back to my seminary room during lunch. My third period class was leaving, and he stood out there in the hallway looking kind of uncomfortable. Like, I hope none of my friends know I'm in the seminary building when I don't have to be. But once the class was empty, he came in and took off his Megadeth hat, hair going everywhere, unclipped his bright pink fanny pack, pulled out a spiral notebook, and said, Brother Halverson, do you have a second? I'm like, yeah, you bet. What what, what can I do for you, FX? And um, he said, "You remember when we talked about the wilderness a couple weeks ago? Like, yeah. He said that I thought that was kind of cool. And just not having so many worldly influences just dragging you in one direction, to just kind of be free of it all and and get to know God. Yeah, I thought that was kind of cool. And um, remember, you said that Lehi prayed." And God kept teaching him. I tried it. Um, After class, I went home and I was, I prayed about the wilderness. I wanted to understand how to get there. And what it would be like. And how it might change me. And, And God taught me. I was amazed at how much he taught me. It was just like Lehi. And you remember how Lehi was like, he thanked God for it and God kept teaching him. Well, I, was th- I, I got back on my knees and I prayed and I said, Thanks, Heavenly Father, for what you're teaching me. And, and all of a sudden, a bunch of other insights came and thoughts about wilderness and stuff. And you remember how you said that Lehi got a book and so he read it more? Well, I started looking in other places in Scripture about the wilderness. Like, did you know that like the Lamanites were in the wilderness, but like it didn't have the effect on them it should have? So, is there like being in the wilderness, like of the wilderness, or like are there fake wildernesses, or like is a wilderness something that's more internal rather than external? And I'm like, keep teaching me. Uh, I don't know. I've never thought about any of this stuff. Keep going. And he said, Well, that's what I that's why I came because when when Lehi re- started writing stuff down and God kept teaching him, that's what I was doing. And that's why he had his spiral notebook open. And he was showing me page after page after page of notes and thoughts and insights about wilderness from all around throughout the scriptures. I was blown away by this kid. And then he said, and you remember how Lehi shared it with the people so God would keep teaching him? That's why I came in, because I just thought maybe if I share it with you, then God will see how much it means to me and, and maybe he'll keep on teaching me. And I said, oh, I'm sure he will. In fact, I'd love to read your book on the wilderness someday. Because it's amazing how much more I'm sure you'll find. Again, as I was going through page after page, one phrase struck me because it was so heavily underlined. I still remember exactly what he wrote. He said, I can't believe how much I'm learning. I'm so excited. My hand is shaking so bad I can barely write. And then in big capital letters, Thank you, God. Underline, 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 underline. And from that moment till now, I have shared that story with so many people, reassuring them that if God will speak to some weird robot kid, (laughs) he'll speak to you. You just have to be willing to learn from him and to continue the process. Tag team, God's just waiting for you to extend the lesson based on what you do with what he's given you. That began an incredible journey for FX20. Oh, just living the gospel, making changes, cutting his hair, <laughs> going on a mission. I've seen him since with children in tow. And he's he's still growing up in God. He's still learning from the Lord. And it's glorious to behold. That, to me, is the message of this opening chapter of this book, inviting us into a conversation with God, a lesson with the Lord that we can make continue. We can extend as long as we want. Okay, hold on to that thought. And then let's turn to chapter two. In chapter two of First Nephi, we get to meet this first family. I mean, it was I, Nephi, we met him, but we don't know anything about him. Goodly parents, and we meet Lehi, and we see his attitude and experience unfold. But there, in chapter 2, we finally get to know Mom, Sariah. We get to know three big brothers, Laman, Lemuel, Sam. And we start to see what makes them tick, and how they're different. It's interesting, because I've even drawn charts on the board, where I'll draw a quadrant, four squares, two by two. And on the top, I'll label it leader and follower. And on the side, I will will label it toward righteousness or toward wickedness. And then I'll say, fill in the blanks with the first family of the Book of Mormon. And it's amazing what a perfect fit it all is. That Nephi is a leader in the direction of righteousness, while Laman is a leader in the direction of wickedness. Sam and Lemuel are both followers and the biggest difference for them is who they choose to follow. It it's, has struck me before, if you know you're a follower type, and there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, We all need to be followers and disciples ourselves, right? But there are times we lead, times we follow. But if you know by nature you're a follower, you go with the flow, then you better be extra careful about what friends you choose. I really wonder how much difference there was between Lemuel and Sam. With the biggest difference being their choice of examples. And the difference that made, made all the difference for them and for their posterity from that moment on. Now, when you see the four of them, though, it's interesting. They're out in the wilderness. They finally find a spot to camp. uh, Lehi says he camped next to a river of water. And that's an interesting detail because it's like river of water. Isn't that redundant? What other kind of river would it be? Well, hold on to that thought. Because when they get to this river, he decides to name it after Laman. And since the river is in a valley, he decides to name the valley after Lemuel. I have sometimes wondered if Nephi and Sam feel left out because no geographical features seem to be named after them. Or do they get it? Like, yep, my parents love us all equally, but they treat us differently based on individual needs. That's a sign of maturity on the part of a child, by the way. But there's something about Laman and Lemuel that they need this. They need this symbol connected to them. And that should also tell us something cool about Lehi as a parent. That he's constantly looking for ways to teach his children. And like Jesus using parables with common, every ordinary, everyday things around him, there's Lehi with an eye-to-see teaching opportunities. And so notice verse 9, for example. 1 Nephi chapter 2, verse 9. When Dad points out the, the river and says, Laman, I wish you were like this. This is how he says it. Oh, that thou mightest be like unto this river, continually running into the fountain of all righteousness. Now, the thought of it continually running also sounds redundant when it comes to rivers. It's like, it's a river. What else is it going to do? But don't forget, this is the Middle East. And as Lehi is taking his family through the wilderness east of Jerusalem, you end up traveling through these wadis. That's the, the word for it. Where it's these canyons, these gullies, And they're dry for most of the year. This is desert territory. But during the rainy season, the rain falls enough that the water starts to collect as it goes down through those gullies, through those wadis, and they become rivers of water when they used to be simply rivers of sand. Now, what's interesting about that is the river depends on outside sources, like the rainfall, to allow it to flow. Whereas this river this river of water, which is continually running toward the Red Sea. Lehi sees that and looks at his oldest son and says, you know, I wish you were like this. I was just talking to my oldest son, who's far more like Nephi than, than Laman, believe me. Great young man. But he was, he's post-mission now. And said it, he was amazed that he, he just thought he was kind of set spiritually. He knew that there would still be challenges in life after his mission, but at least he'd always have this spiritual foundation. And then he realized how much effort it would require to keep it up. I think that's a lesson every return missionary learns. And it was interesting to point out to him this detail from 1 Nephi 2 verse 9, that what... You'll see, as you've seen Laman throughout, that there's times he's good and times he's bad. He seems to be reactive rather than proactive. And if things are set up in a way that he's going to be spiritual, then it works out for a time. But then it seems to fade. And I love the insight on the part of dad to find a, a continually running river. One with its own source. Think about Jesus and his words to the woman at the well, that there can be a well of living water within you, springing up to everlasting life. As I shared with my son, can you imagine having a a spirituality that is independent of outside circumstance? You tap into a source that is unfailing, that runs continually. That's what we're after. And that really resonated with my son. Lehi was hoping it would resonate with his. Same when he talked to Lemuel about this valley. Because the way he describes it in verse ten, O Lemuel, O oh, that thou mightest be like unto this valley, firm and steadfast and immovable in keeping the commandments of the Lord. I mean this valley's not going anywhere, son. This one is as firm as as the bedrock beneath it. I wish you were. Not being caught up with your brother's bad example and just going the way... In some ways, you're the river. You're just flowing downhill the path of least resistance. No, I need you to be like a a firm valley that actually helps the river take a certain course. Think about Joel's language about multitudes in the valley of decision. And there stood Lemuel in his own. And if you're a follower, fine. But choose Mount Nephi, not Mount Laman. You have to be wise here. Immovable in doing what's right. There is so much parental oh, inspiration here in what Father is saying to his sons. It was actually interesting to me once with a seminary class that was filled with really good kids and yet it seemed lifeless every time. And I'd finish class, and I'm like, why did that not go better? I mean, I'm teaching six classes at a time, and I, I can compare them. And I'm teaching the same stuff, so there's, why, why doesn't it not come out with power in this particular group? And every day I taught them, I'd look at the class role before class to get myself pumped up. And I'm like, great kid, amazing kid, wonderful kid. I love these kids. Today's going to be different. And we go to class, and it just kind of fizzled. I'm like, wow, Why? And then the more I thought about it, I realized they're all Sams. That's why I know they're all good kids. Sam's awesome. But he needed a Nephi to lead them. And there were no Nephis in that class. Thankfully, there were no laymen's either. uh, Or I would have lost my Lemuels. But (laughs) a class filled with Sams is still in search of a Nephi. And maybe you're leading a young women or young men's class that way. Maybe your children or grandchildren are mostly Sam's. And if you can coax a Nephi out of one of them, oh, just let them know that these are sheep in need of a good shepherd. They'll follow if you give it to them. Uh, that There's something powerful about seeing each of these family members for what they are. In fact, that's especially true when it comes to Laman and Lemuel. When we get the best description of them early on this is chapter 2 verse 11 and this is a good place to scuba dive i want to make i want to understand what makes somebody like Laman tick why do they go that way they were raised by the same amazing parents as as nephi it goes back to the nature versus nurture and i always laugh when people say those who say that it's all nature excuse me oh did they say it's all nurture i'm like man you must only have one child that's really obedient and you think you (laughs) you made them that way because no, you have multiple children and you'll realize, okay, yeah, nurture can only do so much. There's nature there too. And they come wired in a certain way. And then we have to work within that wiring. Okay? So notice chapter 2, verse 11. Now this he spake because of the stiff-neckedness of Laman and Lemuel. Now we see why they're getting geographical features named after them. They need that extra help. Okay? Their necks were stiff. Think of such a great analogy. Unwilling to look up to God unwilling to bow down before him. There's some pride there, some stubbornness, some stiff-neckedness. For behold, he continues, they did murmur in many things against their father. Ooh, this still has parallels to the Exodus story, right? Instead of Moses and the millions of Israelites, it is Lehi and his four sons. But yes, you've got the murmurers there too. They murmur in many things against their father. First reason, because he was a visionary man. Now, think about that when we talked last week about epistemology. And are you a head-based or a heart-based seeker of truth? Are you like the three witnesses or like the eight witnesses, right? And so to think about, a my dad's a visionary man. Why do I have to listen to him? He has no proof for any of the stuff he's talking about. He hears these prophets come in with these wild stories. that oh, we're going to get destroyed by Babylon. Whatever, we're strong. We can handle this. We didn't get defeated by the Assyrians a century ago. So we're going to be able to handle the Babylonians too we got the temple right here. It's all good. And he's like, no, 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 no. But for Layman and Lemuel, that false sense of security and dismissing the epistemological model of his father. You're visionary. I'm a rationalist. I'm an empiricist. And until you can prove it to me, Dad, don't tell me about the wild stuff that you dreamed about in your sleep. Okay? It's interesting, sadly, in our day to see those that are skeptical about spiritual experiences in general. Their default is like, no, that's elevated emotion. Nope, that's just confirmation bias. Nope, that's just self-induced. You're just a visionary and I don't have to believe a thing. Next line. They believe that he had led them out of the land of Jerusalem to leave the land of their inheritance. And their gold and their silver and their precious things. And that word inheritance would mean something more to laymen than anybody else. As the birthright son, he stands to receive a double portion, which means he's losing twice as much as everyone else. Is there a focus on the goodliness of their belongings instead of the goodness of God? And to be so focused on the material instead of the spiritual, And I just want my earthly inheritance. Who cares about the heavenly one? Now go back to the text and notice what Layman says next. You're a visionary. You're pulling us away from our inheritance. Why? To perish in the wilderness. Now how's that for worst case scenario? How's that for hopelessness about their future? In psychology, they talk about catastrophizing as a negative thought pattern. And when you are painting a worst case scenario picture and you have, there's no hope for your future and woe is me, it's never going to change. It's never going to get better. That almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the kind of attitude that Laman and Lemuel are bringing with them into the wilderness, no wonder they want to go back to Jerusalem every chance they can. That's where my inheritance is. Out here, we're just going to die in the desert. There's nothing, dad. Then notice the next line. This they said he had done because of the foolish imaginations of his heart. There again, they're dismissing any kind of spiritually based knowledge. It's irrational. There's foolishness. It's not based in reality. That's just imagination. And so to see the way... It's so sad to me when a a child of goodly parents that was raised in the gospel is dismissive of spiritual experience. That puts parents in a very difficult spot because my testimony is not going to do anything for them. Uh, They don't see what I see. It's as if I have... It's as if my children are colorblind when I live in a world of so many majestic hues. You, You get a sense of what Lehi and Soraya are up against. But that's still not the biggest problem. Look at verse 12. They did murmur because they knew not the dealings of that God who had created them. If I had to pick a single verse to define the problem with Laman and Lemuel, it's that one. They just don't understand God. If, I'll put it this way, your perspective or perception of God will color your attitude toward him. The way you perceive him will determine whether or not you come unto him or whether you turn tail and run. I'll give you some examples. If you see God as vengeful, then you will interpret every trial as punishment that you probably deserve. That's the God of Calvinism, sadly. If you see God as distant, then you probably see your trials as Oh, random occurrences, as bad luck, oh, best case scenario, as something that God simply allows. Again, compare that to 1 Nephi chapter 1, verse 1, where Nephi has his adversities, plenty of them, but knows he's highly favored of the Lord. That's his view of God. That's not the view that Laman and Lemuel have. If you see God as a micromanager, some kind of divine determinist that puts everything in place exactly the way it's supposed to go, then, well, your trials, your adversity, at best is a chance to test you and try you. And there's some truth to that. But there's also this fatalism that comes where it's already all set in stone. There's everything predetermined. And why would God let that happen? It's actually interesting. I've talked about this before, but that's what gives rise to the everything happens for a reason fallacy. And it's false because it's a counterfeit. And counterfeits are really close to the truth. What's wrong about everything happens for a reason is it's chalking everything up to God's will. And even mistakes we made. well, it happened for a reason. God must have been behind that sin. No, he wasn't. That was me, my agency. If that's the false, what's the true? Romans chapter eight, verse 28, that all things work together for good to them that love God. Ah, so God is not the divine predeterminist. He's not the micromanager. He's not writing the script and directing the movie. No, it's... I always use sports movies as my analogy here. Because it's one thing to watch a sports movie where everything does happen for a reason. It's to crank up the the drama, and they had to drop that pass, and there needed to be an interception. they got to be down at the end of the fourth quarter so that the comeback is glorious. Yeah, everything happens for a reason. God had spelled it all out on the script. But if that's how you view God, you might be setting yourself up for some disappointment or some frustration or some anger toward him, some murmuring because you know not the dealings of that God who created you. If instead of being the script writer in a football movie, if he's the coach on the sideline, living it in real time right alongside you, calling plays but honoring agency and acknowledging opposition and working within our own parameters to make something good out of something that doesn't look very promising? Oh, the dropped pass, the committed sin did not happen for a reason. That's not the play I called. But I can work within the game. And I've got an amazing play for second and long. nobody wants to have a third and long but I've got some amazing plays if we can just execute even if we can't I've got a trick play up my sleeve for we'll fake the punt (laughs) or even if we kick it we can get a turnover on defense I'm amazed at God's ability to work with us and through us and in us and acknowledging and honoring agency throughout the whole process that's the God we worship if we see him as a loving parent who honors agency who intervenes based on a combination of human faith and divine will, which we'll see throughout the pages of the Book of Mormon, then how do we approach him? With faith? With trust? We know he'll be with us through all of it. I mean, honestly... When I have students that know they're going to be teaching a lot of atheists on the mission field, and they ask, how do I bring up God with people who don't believe in him? I always say, ask them to describe the God they don't believe in. And they're always like, they won't have anything to say. They don't believe in God. I'm like, oh, they'll have something to say, believe me. Because there's a certain depiction of God they have chosen to reject. That's what makes them an atheist. And if you listen to their description of God, Almost invariably, you'll be able to say to them, Oh, in that case, I'm an atheist too, because I don't believe in that kind of God. But let me introduce you to a God worth believing in, your true Father in heaven. Laman and Lemuel, if you would simply come to know the way God works, like Nephi does in the very first verse, to know his goodness shining through his mysteries. Sometimes you scratch your head and wonder, God's working in a mysterious way. I have no idea why we have to leave our our inheritance and go out into the wilderness to die. Well, maybe we're not going to die. Maybe God does know what he's doing. Maybe that mystery has goodness shining through. Maybe my affliction still means I'm highly favored. Maybe I'll trust him with this. Laman and Lemuel cannot do that. Nephi can And it's just, how do you view God? Now, how do you raise a child who views God that way? That's a tough one, too. But if you look at verse 14, for example, notice what dad says to these sons, or at least how how his lessons are described. We've already seen that he's, he's trying to appeal to the better angels of their nature, river, Laman, valley, Lemuel, But then in verse 14, it came to pass that my father did speak unto them in the valley of Lemuel. And nothing's going to happen without a lot of communication between parent and child. We've got to understand where they're coming from. We need to speak with them and let them speak to us with all the brutal honesty that they're able to share. We need to know where they're coming from. And so open those lines of communication. Speak unto them. And then notice this, with power, being filled with the Spirit until their frames did shake before him. And he did confound them, that they durst not utter against him, wherefore they did as he commanded them. Now the end of that sounds overly strong. He confounded them? That was one I needed to look up in the 1828 dictionary to see what Joseph Smith meant by that translated word. It means to abash, to throw the mind into disorder, to cast down, to make ashamed, To perplex with terror, to terrify, to dismay, to astonish, to throw into consternation, to stupefy with amazement. How's that for a mouthful? To confound means all of that? Man, Dad's getting in their face, calling them out. Actually, don't jump to that conclusion. Who was doing the confounding there? Sounded like the spirit to me, because Dad is simply speaking He's not threatening. We're going to see how he responds to his children even more a little bit later. We'll see at the end of chapter 8, for example, next week. But to speak with the power of the Spirit so that the Spirit can throw that person's mind into some kind of disorder that pulls them out of the... Well, in some ways, the mind is already disordered. You don't understand God. If I can disorder the disorder, then it's now ordered. And if I can teach with enough spirit that they can start to get a sense of what God's really like, they may not trust my spirituality, but they can't deny their own once they start to feel it. And so to speak by way of the Holy Ghost and let the Spirit Get them questioning their false assumptions, their faulty perceptions. Maybe God isn't like that after all. Maybe what I've assumed, I don't know. There's just something different about the way mom and dad are talking to me. They... I mean, I'm threatened to leave the church or to threaten them and this, that, the other and yet they're responding to me with such kindness, such compassion. They just want to hear. They want to talk. And there's a calm. There's a peace. There's all those beautiful Christ-like attributes from section 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Gentleness, meekness, love unfeigned. Let the Spirit confound. As people walk away going, yeah, that didn't go the way I thought it would. My parents are a lot nicer (laughs) than I Gave them credit for. Maybe I need a second... I maybe I need to think about this a little bit more. Second guess my own departure. I think there's a lot to this. Now, go back to the rest of the family, though. And how does that compare to Nephi and Sam? I love this verse, verse 16. When Nephi says of himself, that having great desires to know of the mysteries of God, wherefore I did cry unto the Lord and behold, he did visit me. What that visit was like, I wish he he elaborated, but a divine visit that softened my heart that I did believe all the words which had been spoken by my Father. Wherefore, so as a result of that, because of that spiritual experience, I did not rebel against him like unto my brothers, which suggests that he would have been tempted to if it hadn't been for the divine softening of his heart that came when he asked for it. I think there's something beautiful there too about Nephi not being just some kind of blindly obedient child, not some kind of just submissive soul that just does what he's told. No, this was just as hard for him as it was for Laman and Lemuel, it seems. It's like, really? We're leaving everything? I'm large in stature. I'm captain of the Jerusalem high football team. And and really, we're just going to ditch? To some unknown? I don't know. My dad, he's taught me somewhat in all his learning, and he's learned a lot about God. The way he came home from that experience hearing the prophets, he was on fire. talked about a pillar of fire, in fact. What he said he read in that book, what he shared with the people that, yeah, I know something about God's goodness, as well as his mysteries. I just want to understand for myself. And we'll see him do this repeatedly. That's the beautiful thing about about Nephi. He was never content to just take somebody else's word for it. That's awesome. You want to know why? You want to know for himself? It's like, this is hard. Heavenly Father, please help me. And being humble enough to ask, God rewarded his humility with more humility on top of that. Softened his heart. So it's like, okay, yeah, this is I bet we're in for afflictions. But I know we're highly favored. I can feel that. It's going to be okay. And he didn't complain. And if that's Nephi, remember, we're filling in the blocks. Okay, We've got Laman as a leader in the wrong direction. We've got Lemuel as a follower in the wrong direction. We've got Nephi as a leader in the right direction. Well, how about Sam? Look at verse 17. I spake unto Sam, making known unto him the things which the Lord had manifested unto me by his Holy Spirit. So not just what Dad said, but what God told me about what Dad said. And it came to pass, in Sam's case, that he believed in my words. And that's an interesting one. Again, it seems true to form as as far as a follower is concerned. Nephi didn't just take his dad's word for it. He wanted to know for himself. But Sam did take Nephi's word for it. He trusted him. He believed. And that was enough. There's something beautiful about this first family. You see so many different personality types. And that's important for all of us because we seem to fit on the framework somewhere. You remember section 46 of the Doctrine and Covenants? Spiritual gifts, and to some it is given to know, whereas others it is given to believe on their words. That first example seems to be Nephi, and Sam seems to be the second example. Independent witness versus trust in in those that have it. But the beautiful thing about section 46 is it says that the second group is equally worthy of exaltation as the first group. It says that they they also may receive eternal life. So Nephi and Sam, you're cut from a little different cloth, but you're headed in the same direction. So whether you have to wrestle with things and just come to know, or whether you just were born with a believing spirit, and you, you've known because of the way the gospel has been lived by those that you're following that, yeah, that I that have no reason not to trust this truth. I love Sam, just like I love Nephi. Uh, now, we're going to see more about this family in chapter five when you see Lehi and Sariah come to the fore. But before we get there. We need to study chapter three and chapter four. And I know this lesson's going long already, but we gotta we gotta spend time here, okay? In these two chapters, we see the obtaining of the brass plates. Again, this is a book about getting books, right? And so the key text that we usually run to is in 1 Nephi chapter 3, verse 7. You probably have it memorized. That I, Nephi, will go and I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded. For I know that the Lord giveth no commandment unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way for them that they may accomplish the thing which he hath commanded them. Those are words to live by. And for us, I think our favorite part of the phrase is, I will go and do. It's this sense of commitment and conviction, and it's all going to work. I think we also love the promise that if the Lord's commanded it, then he will make a way, he'll prepare a way for us to accomplish it. That nothing, is, is there anything too, too hard for the Lord? Absolutely not, right? Right. Uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. Thank you, Paul. I love that. But you know what's interesting? From Dad's perspective, I think there was a different part of that verse that stood out to him. Because notice this detail. Two verses earlier in verse 5, Dad said to Nephi, Behold thy brothers murmur, saying, It is a hard thing which I have required of them. But behold, I have not required it of them, but it is a commandment of the Lord. Notice the difference there in verse 5. It's the difference between a divine command or a father's foolish imagination. And the problem with Laman and Lemuel, because they didn't understand God, they didn't understand dad either. And they assumed dad's had another weird dream and all of a sudden he's like book lonely and here we are in the desert and there's no library. So what, we got to go back and find some brass plates that's being held by Laban? Whatever, dad. Why would you make us do this? So again, think about what, how that sounds in Lehi's ears. Like, I'm not the one asking you. I'm not the one that said we got to pack up and leave. That was God. One of my close friends in my own ward today was my, his send-off. He works for the State Department and he's heading off to Turkmenistan, if I remember correctly. And can you imagine your dad coming home and saying to the kids they've got lots of little kids at home and he's saying hey we're going to head off to Turkmenistan and you're like huh? now in his case it wasn't his decision it was the United States State Department in Lehi's case hey kids we're going to leave all the wealth that we've amassed and we're going to go out into a wilderness in hopes that God keeps his promise that there's a promised land out there for us somewhere huh? What are you thinking, Dad? What did you eat before you went to bed last night? Yeah, foolish imaginations from a visionary man. Forget that epistemology. And yet, when Nephi comes to his dad and says, I will go and do the things that the Lord hath commanded. For I know that the Lord giveth no commandment unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way that we may accomplish the things which he hath commanded them. And it's those pronouns, it's that title of Lord that would have meant the most to Father Lehi. It's like, son, you get it. This isn't me. It's okay to ask questions like, why? Why do we have to live this commandment? But it's even better to ask questions like, who? Who's asking me to do it? As we're raising our children, hopefully we can teach the who behind every what and that will help them with the why and move them towards the how. That was not the case with Laman and Lemuel. God wouldn't do that. It must be you. Why would you make us do this? And why do I have to follow my lunatic father? Now, where do the commandments really come from? Is Russell M. Nelson just a nice old man that's asking certain things that have crossed his mind, or is he a prophet, seer, and revelator conveying commandments from God? Those are questions worth asking. Okay? Nephi gets it. And dad is rejoicing as a result. So he decides, hey, we're going to go. And he brings his brothers with him. Now they head back to Jerusalem. This would have been a long journey to get back. We don't know exactly how to, the time frame, but the time to go back, the time these three different attempts to get the plates to come back in the wilderness. This could have been a month that they were gone. So no wonder mom is distraught by the time he gets to chapter 5. But still in chapter 3, there are three different rounds of attempts. And I'm just going to fly through these because this is a very famous story. The first time, they consult one with another. And that's not bad because they're at least they're counseling with their counsels, as Elder Ballard used to say. And so let's talk about this. Let's figure it out. But then they end up casting lots, which sounds a lot like just, well, roll the die or pull the straw or do something. And we're going to trust this to fate. Now, talking about things and then just kind of leaving it to chance yeah, might not end up the best way. Now, we have to be careful here because if it's just rolling the dice and it's, or flipping the coin and it's 50-50 or we're going to do rock, paper, scissors or whatever it is, are we trusting fate? Are we trusting blind luck? Or are we trusting God in a way that was true to the time period? Because there are examples in the Bible where they would cast lots on certain things. And it was almost a way to allow God to manifest his will in some visible way. And that could actually work, they believed. Sometimes I'm sure it did. But the interesting thing about that is, you really are leaving it to God 100%. Or, again, in the absence of God's participation, you are leaving it to luck. There may be times where God's totally fine with the coin toss. With, with the coin toss, excuse me. It may be when He says, "Well, go north, south, east, or west; it mattereth not. You cannot go amiss, right?" Then you know, sure, just spin the spinner, and wherever it's pointing, head in that direction. Cast a lot; you can't go wrong. Every possibility is equally good, as far as I'm concerned. So go with it. But in this family, can you imagine the four different possibilities? Either Laman's going to go, or Lemuel's going to go, or Sam's going to go, or Nephi's going to go. And of those four, what do you think is the ideal outcome? Well, I hope cast the lot and it falls on Nephi. He's the one that has faith. He's going to make this happen. But who does the lot fall on in round number one? You guessed it. Laman. The worst possible outcome. Are you willing to chance it when there's a differentiation between outcomes? And one that you would never choose if it was left up to you, I mean, do some homework here, boys. Again, glad you started counseling, but then don't just leave it to the fates. They go layman it falls on layman. He goes, what does it say? He did. What's his approach. It says he talked with Laban. And can you imagine trying to fill in the model, the dialogue for that one? It's like, yeah, my crazy dad ate something weird. And he had a dream that we had to come get these brass plates from you. Is that Okay. And you really think Laban's going to go for that? No. Again, you're trusting things to a worst possible scenario outcome at worst. And sure enough, the worst happened. Laban is so outraged by this that he sends his troops. He call, first of all, he calls Laban or calls Laman a thief. like He came to steal it, which was totally not the case. I was like, I'm asking for it. We talked about. We're talking about this. And then he sends his troops to go kill him. Now, Laban outruns them. He takes off, comes back to his brothers, and, and he's mad but not as mad as he's going to be. Because second attempt, here's Nephi. They're all sad about it. But yet he's determined. I love his language. It's like, no, as long as, as the Lord liveth, we will not go down. We're not going down. We're not going back to the wilderness. We're not going back to our dad empty handed. God made the command. God will provide a way. In fact, maybe he already has. He told us, he told dad to leave all of our wealth. And there was a lot of it. Sorry to bring up a painful subject, Laban. But your so-called inheritance, it's all still here. So let's gather it. And if, if a free gift from Laban feels like a theft on, from him, for him, then let's buy it. And we will make him an offer he can't refuse. He can have all our stuff. All we want is that one book from you. So if the first time was placing their trust in luck or fate, The second time is placing their faith in the arm of flesh. Temporal things, worldly wealth, of course, with money, we can buy just about anything we want. So they try it that way. And how does Laban respond? Covetously. He must have been pretty wealthy himself, but he's so awed by this wealth, and he sees an easy way to get it, that he sends his, serv- his soldiers after this family of brothers. And I love the way Nephi puts it. This language is hilarious. Verse 26, It came to pass that we did flee before the servants of Laban, and we were obliged to leave behind our property. And it fell into the hands of Laban. Think about the word obliged and the word fell. This is so calm compared to Laban's violent anger. It's so kind of take it or leave it, easy come, easy go. I mean, we were, here we are sprinting away for our very lives and we were obliged. Yeah, I mean, forced at the point of a spear, basically. We were obliged to leave behind our wealth and oh, wonder what happened to it. Well, I'm sure it just fell into the hands of Laban. Now, it's then that Laman is absolutely livid to the point of beating his brother with a stick until an angel had to come and break up the fight. You know that part of the story. But what amazes me here, again, is, first of all, laymen must have been banking on getting it back. It's like dad left the land of our, our inheritance. But okay, fine, get them and my other brothers out of the picture. All I have to do is go back. It's all right there. It's not like we've locked it up. People are going to know we were getting out of town. Now, we just kind of left it like we were I kind of gone for the weekend. But it's all right there waiting for me to go back and get not just my double portion, but the whole thing. But now it's gone and gone for good. And can you imagine how furious he is? Because now the only positive future he envisioned is, has gone up in smoke. As opposed to Nephi's language, which shows that we didn't lose any of it. I mean, sure, it fell into his hands, but I, I left it the first time. As far as I was concerned, it was God's gold and silver by then. And if he wanted to use it to buy the plates, great. We're not, we're not going to do anything with it. Does us no good in the wilderness. You understand? I love the fact that Nephi had already made the sacrifice. And so it didn't feel like a sacrifice the second time. You with me? Well, again, that didn't, that didn't work. The angel comes, break up, breaks up the fight, promises them success. Remember that detail when you get there. Promises it's going to work. And as soon as the angel leaves, Laban and Lemuel are back to their murmuring ways. But how? In fact, that's the word they use in verse 31. How is it possible that the Lord will deliver Laban into our hands? Behold, he is a mighty man, and he can command 50. Yea, even he can slay 50. Why not us? Again, they're not asking the right question. Here they're asking how. How's he going to do it? I want to know logistics. When they should have been asking who? And that was an answer they already had. God will deliver him into your hands. Now, Nephi himself was no more clued in to how it was the logistics than his older brothers were. He didn't understand it either, but he trusted. And so when chapter three turns to chapter four, I love Nephi's initial words. When they're asking how is it even possible they could do it, Nephi says God is mightier than all the earth then why not mightier than Laban and his 50 (laughs) or even his tens of thousands numbers are not the issue here therefore let us go up let us be strong like unto Moses for he truly spake unto the waters of the Red Sea and they divided hither and thither and our fathers came through out of captivity on dry ground and the armies of Pharaoh did follow and were drowned in the waters of the Red Sea now behold Ye know that this is true. See, he's, he's appealing to their testimony of the Israelite past. Ye also know that an angel hath spoken unto us. So now he's appealing to their personal spiritual experience. Wherefore can ye doubt? Is the question he leaves them with. And I love that one. Wherefore means why. Why are you still doubtful when your own experience tells you otherwise? When scripture tells you otherwise? I love this passage because it helps us see how Nephi studies the scriptures and how he tries to live them. Because notice what he says at the end. Let us go up. The Lord is able to deliver us, even as our fathers, and to destroy Laban, even as the Egyptians. Remember when you took the SAT or the ACT and there were those analogies you had to fill in? Dog is to puppy as cat is to kitten. And you're establishing relationships here. Well, fill out this one. Laban is to the Egyptians as we are to come on, layman, you can do this. Our fathers. And God is to God since he hasn't changed. The same God that brought our fathers out of the Egyptian hand, out of Pharaoh, from underneath Pharaoh's thumb. He can save us from This local Laban, as Elder Maxwell used to call him. That's all he is, just a local Laban. This is no Pharaoh. So he can command 50? That doesn't scare God at all. God has some interesting military victories under his belt. And if he can do that for Moses, why can't he do it with us? Come on, wherefore can ye doubt? That's good scripture study. In some ways, our job this year and every year as we study scripture is to stockpile principles like this one. God delivers the righteous from the hands of the wicked. How many examples of that can you see? David with Goliath. Elisha and with all of the armies of Israel. The chariots of fire against the hosts of the enemy. Moses and Pharaoh. There are so many examples. And Nephi knew he would be one as well. That's good scripture study. Okay, Cloud of witnesses. In some ways, the real question we should ask in any given circumstance is, which scriptural story am I living right now? Because I know it's the same God in both instances. It's just a matter of knowing how I'm supposed to respond to the situation I'm in. Okay? Well, the third time is the charm here. And it's the third time, this beautiful verse, chapter 4, verse 6, Where Nephi says, I was led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things which I should do. So, I don't know what the future holds, other than victory. Uh, I will go and do the things. I know the Lord will prepare a way. And I don't know how he's going to do it, but I'm not worried about the how. I've got the who. And that's all I need right now. So he goes forward. It's actually interesting if you look at the details, because his brothers, are Laman and Lemuel, are still grumbling. They're still murmuring. And so, But, but they, they accompany him. But one interesting detail is that when they get to the wall of the city, Nephi leaves them there. It's like, hey, thanks for coming, but I think it's best if it's just me and God going forward. This totally reminds me of Jesus when he raises the daughter of Jairus from the dead. Remember that story? When he leaves the, the crowd of mourners outside because they have doubt, and no doubt allowed inside the room where a miracle has to happen. Only faith allowed inside. So mom, dad, you've got it. Peter, James, John, you've got it. At least you better. And I know I've got it. And so it's the faithful that are allowed entrance to behold the miracle. In fact, to help it come forth. So there's, in this occasion, similarly, Nephi is saying, if you're only coming begrudgingly, And grumblingly, then it's not going to do us any good. Why don't you stay here outside the wall and I'll bring my faith in with me. Now he goes and it's here that one of the worst opening stories of the Book of Mormon occurs. Because as you know, hopefully no spoiler alert needed here. Nephi ends up slaying Laban to be able to obtain the plates. And all of a sudden, you have a homicide four chapters into this text that's supposed to be scripture from God. On my mission, one woman made it painfully clear. When we came back after a first discussion, that was like she was on fire. So excited to study the Book of Mormon. We came back for the second discussion, expecting her to be an Alma or something already. And she just handed us the book back and said, take it. I know it's not true. And I'm like, whoa, what? Really? What did you read? And she said, I got through the first four chapters. And then it dawned on me, oh, okay, yeah. Let me guess, you're mad that Nephi killed Laban? And she's like, duh, of course. And the fact that God told him to, that makes it all the worse. The same God that said thou shalt not kill is now all of a sudden commanding murder? No way. I guess your old Joe Smith forgot about the sixth commandment when he made up the Book of Mormon. No, I'm sticking with thou shalt not kill. I was at a loss, like, okay. Um. Actually, at first I wasn't at a loss. I thought, okay, I've talked to people about this before. I've thought about it through myself. This is fine. And I just looked at her and said, oh, yeah, what about Abraham and Isaac? There's an example of God commanding a homicide. In fact, an infanticide, your own, your own son. And then she responded, yeah. But then he stopped him. I'm like, oh, touche. You're right. Okay. Bad example. Um, ooh, layman. No, no. How about David and Goliath? There you go, because David did end up killing Goliath, and God said he was still a man after his own heart, chosen to be king. And she said, "Fine," but that was war, and that's different. I'm like, oh, dang it. So there I was. Um, strike one. Strike two. What do I do now? Well, as a young missionary, I just turned to my trainer. And he looked back and kind of shrugged. And I'm like, great. Um, What do I do? And it was so interesting because it was one of those moments where it was, open your mouth and it shall be filled. And I'm like, I've opened my mouth twice and it's been filled with her rebuttal both times. I don't know what else to say here. Um, Actually, something popped in my head. I said, oh, it actually says it right there in the text. The Lord himself says, better that one man should perish than a nation should dwindle and perish in unbelief. Laban was in their way and had to be moved out of the way so they could obtain the plates. Okay? God said so. And she said, there are so many other ways that Laban could be moved out of the way than murder. In fact, if Laban needed to die, fine, let God do it. God's the one in charge of life and death. It's not going to make somebody else do something like that. And then I really was done. Okay, well, that's it. Do you have any neighbors that don't have any, wouldn't have any problems with uh, the homicide in First Nephi chapter 4 that we could share this story with? Uh, where this wasn't going anywhere. But again, open your mouth. It shall be filled. I'm like, it's been filled with my foot. This isn't working. Just try again. So I found myself saying to this sweet woman, um, yeah, you're mad at Nephi, huh? You think he's committed murder, and so you want to put him on trial. Okay, let's do it. Let's put Nephi on trial. And my companion's like, huh? What are you, what are you doing here? I'm like, I don't know. Um, but don't forget, it's 600 BC. So this would be a Mosaic law court. A court of Mosaic law. And it's in that law that you already quoted it. Thou shalt not kill. And yeah, I guess Nephi is going to have to answer for that. But actually, can we bring Laban to the stand first? Because doesn't he have some stuff to answer for I mean, he threatened Laman with death. Then later he sent his servants to kill all four of those boys. Are we up to five counts of attempted murder? And if this is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for life, death for death, then has he chalked up five death penalties on himself by the way he's treated them? And that was only the sixth commandment. What about thou shalt not steal... That's the 8th commandment, because uh, he stole all their stuff. Now, I don't think that brought the death penalty, but still, we're racking up some charges against Laban here. Oh, and then there's the 10th commandment, "Thou shalt not covet, and man, he wanted all their stuff. That's why he stole it in the first place. And actually, there's even this weird uh, commandment or law in the law of Moses, 600 BC, and we're sticking in court, right? Take God completely out of the picture, and just Nephi's there in court, um, there's this interesting one in the law of Moses that says, if you falsely accuse somebody else, then whatever punishment you were going to inflict on them comes back and is inflicted on you. It was a great way to avoid whistleblowers that were false. There's no false accusation allowed in ancient Israel. And to scare off false accusers, it's like, okay, if you're making something up and, and we find out, it's going to come back to bite you. Now again, think about that first instance. What does he say to Laman? You're a robber. And that wasn't the case. He hadn't come to steal anything. And what was he going to do? And I will slay you. So that death threat has to come back to bite Laban. And according to the Old Testament, Law of Moses, 600 B.C. court, who executes the judgment? The witnesses do. And that's exactly what Nephi was. So I guess you could take God completely out of the picture, just drag Nephi towards the court, and most likely he would get off scot-free, not for committing homicide, but for executing justice according to the law of his time. And this woman sat there listening and then said, can I have my book back? I'm like, sure, here it is. And she was ready to keep on reading. Well, we finished the discussion and left. And I remember my companion looking at me as we were walking out of the street, just going, oh. and I was looking up as we were walking out of the street, going, oh. because he was like, Halverson, where did you get all of that? And I'm like, I have no idea. I, I didn't know any of that stuff before we started. I was, I was just excited to find out what I was going to say next. And it just kept coming. Now, granted, I had read the Old Testament before my mission. So it was in there somewhere, the deep recesses. But what's that verse? Take no thought beforehand, but treasure up continually the words of life. And it shall be given you in the very moment, that portion that shall be meted to every man. That happened to me that day. I sense have studied a lot more about this story. And there's all kinds of beautiful scholarship about the legalistic treatment of what's happening here. Uh, Jack Welch, John W. Welch, an amazing legal professor, law professor at UIU, and an amazing scholar of the Book of Mormon, has written a great article on the the legalistic aspects of, of this story. And there's all kinds of other interesting scholarship that's been written about it, because it is a troubling story, believe me. Uh, Elder Holland has written about this. Uh, Millet and McConkie have written about this. Uh, there's actually a beautiful, more recent article by Charles Swift where he takes a much closer read of the whole story and points out some fascinating details that I'd always missed. I'll show you a few as we go through. And again, we'll have to be fairly brief here. But look at verse 10 of chapter 4. It came to pass that I was constrained by the Spirit. That I should kill Laban. That's the very first thing. We don't know the dialogue. We don't know exactly what the Spirit said yet. But some kind of constraint placed on him. And in the 1828 dictionary, constraint means to urge irresistibly or powerfully. To compel. To force. And it says there that Nephi shrunk at that command. He said, I said in my heart, never at any time have I shed the blood of man. And I shrunk and would that I might not slay him. That shrinking word is an interesting one because that's the word that Jesus himself uses to describe Gethsemane. He wanted to shrink from what seemed like an impossible command from his father. I, there's no way I can do what you are constraining me to do. And that constraint is suggests there's no other option here. And so here's Nephi caught between a rock and a hard place. Caught between his own feelings of morality that are defined by thou shalt not kill. I've never shed the blood of any man. And I'm large in stature. but I've never used that to hurt anyone else. But that's caught against the same God who is saying in this moment, you must. In verse 11, the spirit said unto me again. And this is one of the things I'm so grateful that Charles Swift pointed out. Because if he's saying it again, now we see what he said the first time. And here's the quote, Behold, the Lord hath delivered him into thy hands. Put that in quotation marks. And now you know what God is saying repeatedly, what the Spirit has conveyed. And now we're back in Nephi's head. Yea, I also knew, but this is Nephi. This is Nephi thinking out loud in in this case, or on the paper, on the page, on the plate. But God simply said, I've delivered him into your hands. And so, yes, you've got to kill him. You're constrained to that. Now, Nephi is starting to make sense of it. He's trying to, I would not call this rationalizing, but I'm trying to make sense of why God would say this. I knew that he had sought to take away my own life. That's the death penalty on his part, right? Yea, and he would not hearken unto the commandments of the Lord. And then another one, he had also taken away our property. So it's in that moment that Nephi starts running through this court case like I just described. But that wasn't the Lord saying it. It wasn't God saying, this is all justified. This is you doing justice according to the law of your day. That's Nephi trying to make sense of why on earth would God say this? How, how could this ever be possible? But then verse 12, It came to pass that the Spirit said unto me again, Slay him, for the Lord hath delivered him into thy hands. That's it. Here's the commandment. God has placed this man in your path for you to do this act. In fact, to do it on my behalf. Because notice what the Lord then explains. Or excuse me, what the Spirit explains. Behold, the Lord slayeth the wicked to bring forth his righteous purposes. After all, here's the explanation. It is better that one man should perish than that a nation should dwindle and perish in unbelief. Now, this isn't just some kind of moral calculus being tabulated. And like, ah, well, one down, nations that will grow out of this will be blessed by the word of God in Scripture. It's simply a judgment on God's part where he says, the Lord slayeth the wicked to bring forth his righteous purposes. And with that statement, without having to list all the commandments that Laban broke, God has passed judgment upon this man that's lying drunk in the street. This is far from premeditated murder, Nephi doesn't want to have anything to do with it. But he's been given a commandment by a God of judgment and justice. And when the, when, God, when the Spirit says to him, The Lord slayeth the wicked, I can picture Nephi saying, Then, yeah, let him do it. And the Spirit saying, What do you think he's trying to do through you? Nephi, what did you say when you were talking to your dad before coming on this journey? That commandments come from God? Did you mean that? That you'll do whatever the Lord commands? Did you mean that too? That the Lord will provide a way for you to accomplish the things that he commands you to do? Was that all bluff and bluster? Or do you mean it? I wonder, there seems to be something here about God almost calling Nephi's bluff to see if it was one. Will you obey me no matter what? The real test of morality is to do what God tells you to do. Now, this is not, to meant, this is not meant to justify anyone who claims divine you know, command to do the unthinkable. In Nephi's case, he knew God. He had already been visited by him. He had the spirit soften his heart. He knew he had a relationship. This is Abraham and Isaac. Do the impossible because I command. And remember, Abraham did not expect his hand to be stayed. He fully intended to go through with what God had commanded him to do. So did Nephi. When he finally realized that, and yes, this is a a test of my obedience unlike anything I've ever experienced then what am I going to do verse 17 and 18 I knew that the Lord had delivered Laban into my hands for this cause that I might obtain the records according to his commandments now he talked himself through that the previous couple of verses he's like okay we have to have the commandments of God I know that this is all about obedience that's what it boils down to uh, how does this t- uh, this test of obedience to this level? But if obedience is what matters most, and by the way, please keep an eye on that from this moment forward through First and Second Nephi. Nephi defines himself by obedience to God. It's in, among his last words at the end of Second Nephi. Pay it. Keep an eye out for obedience throughout Nephi's entire minute, life and ministry. You'll see it everywhere. And here God's calling him on it. And then as he's trying to wrap his head around this and work his way through it, he realizes, well, we have to all keep the commandments. The commandments are written upon the brass plates. We can't keep commandments we don't know about. And so my posterity will have to have the scriptures to reveal the commandments so they know how they have to live their lives. This whole story is about obedience. And now it... The sticking point is me keeping this impossible, unthinkable commandment from God. But I know it comes from him. Forget Jewish law. That's not why we're doing it. Because that would not be a test of faith or obedience on my part. It would simply be justice doing its due. (sighs) Okay. Therefore, I did obey the voice of the spirit. And took Laban by the hair of the head and I smote off his head with his own sword. And can you sense Nephi's shudder of the soul? Can you imagine from that moment on, every time he opened the brass plates to copy a passage from Isaiah, for example, he would be haunted by a dark alley somewhere in the streets of Jerusalem with a sword in one hand and a fistful of hair on the other and trembling nerve but (sighs) clenched teeth and white knuckles and will I do what God has commanded of me or will I shrink? Can you think of another son of God facing the unimaginable and Trembling, white-knuckled in the garden. Wondering if he can keep God's impossible command or if he must shrink from it. And how does the Lord introduce himself when the risen Lord comes to the Nephites? I'm the one that obeys my father's command. That's how Nephi is going to define himself from this moment on as well. That's how Elder Holland deals with this whole story too. It's really fascinating to understand where he's coming from. Like I said, so many scholars have wrestled with from so many different perspectives. But the simplest explanation might be the most accurate, which is simply obey Nephi. You know the who. And that's what matters. I'm amazed by him. I'm amazed by the aftermath. As then again, I know not what I was led by the spirit, not knowing beforehand what I should do. Okay, now I did that. What, what's the next step? Well, go get the plates. And I wonder how much of this is God continuing to walk him through it or now it's, it's on you. to figure this out. But he dresses in Laban's clothing. He goes and finds the, his servant, Zoram. You've got the keys to the treasury. Take me there. I want the brass plates. I need to take them to my brethren outside the walls. And Zoram is like, your brother? Oh, the brothers of the Jews. Okay, yeah, they want their scriptures too. Sounds good. And he goes... It's actually interesting detail that what is it about Nephi in disguise that convinces Zoram that it's okay? It says he recognized his master's garments and his master's sword. Again, one of the great things about scripture is these layers and levels of symbolism that can be attached to different things. I mean, even that phrase, better that one man should perish than a nation should dwindle and perish in unbelief. Does that sound like the atonement to you? Better that one man, one son of man of holiness should perish, then that every nation should dwindle and perish in unbelief, in iniquity, in unworthiness. I see Jesus in that verse too. But to recognize your master by the garments he wears and the sword that he wields. How will we recognize Christ? Oh, by his robes of righteousness. And by the sword of the spirit and word that he wields so well. In return, how will he recognize us? What are we wearing? Is our wedding garment on? What are we wielding? Do we know the word? Do we have the spirit? There's I don't know, something beautiful to me about that. And then the, the rest of the story, and I'll just throw this out quickly... One year, I was doing a combo sequential topical study. I was about to get married, so I wanted to read the entire Book of Mormon looking for marriage lessons. And the first one I found was here in Chapter 4 from Nephi and Zoram, of all all people. What was my lesson? If she runs, tackle her. No, no, that was not it. I'm kidding. The lesson was, notice the words. When you read the end of Chapter 4, keep an eye out because... You have two perfect strangers that are about to start a journey together. Sound like marriage? Basically. You're heading off to a wilderness of the unknown in hopes of arriving at a promised land someday. But there's a lot of tension, confusion, doubt, fear on both parties. That's why Nephi had to kind of hold him there for a second. But then there's this conversation that ensues. And when you read it, look for covenant language. It's so beautiful. It talks about oaths, covenants, promises being made. And when Nephi promises Zoram, come with us and you'll be a free man. Nobody's servant. Equal partners in this journey. One of us. You're nobody's second class. You're no second class citizen. You're no servant. You're you're equal partners here. And because of that promise, it says that Zoram's heart took courage. And then Zoram made a promise in return. I promise I'll go with you. I'm not going to run back and report you to the authorities. And then it says that because of Zoram's oath, Nephi and his brothers, their fears ceased concerning him. And I remember feeling like that was such a gift as I began my Book of Mormon study of marriage. As the Lord revealed, if you're nervous about starting a marriage, if you two strangers Don't know how you're going to make it through this wilderness journey. Then trust in covenant. Trust in the power of your promises. And your hearts will take courage. And your fears will cease. And that's exactly how my wife and I began our marriage and have been living it ever since. Trusting in the power of promise. Covenant. Beautiful. Thank you, Zoram and Nephi, for teaching me that. And then one last short little chapter we'll have to do briefly. I know we've gone double time today. I'm sorry, not sorry. I'll I'll keep trying. But in chapter five you meet Sariah. We saw her before, just briefly mentioned by Nephi. But here she plays a, a starring role, and it's it's in sorrow. She is devastated because it's been all this time that's passed and what's become of my sons and the catastrophizing that Laman and Lemuel were guilty of. She starts feeling too. And I can't blame her. I'm not trying to throw Saria under the bus here. She's gotten to her breaking point. We're going, to see ne- we're going to see Lehi's breaking point in chapter 16. He's got one too. So hold out for it. But at this point, what is Saria's breaking point? The loss of her sons. It sounds like a mother heart to me. But what's interesting here is that she tends to take it out on her husband. And trials can do that in the best of marriages. When something is going wrong, some hard tribulation, adversity, sometimes husband and wife approach it from two different angles, and as a result, they see the other party across from themselves, hovering over the problem, as if they were the source. We're not, we're, we're not seeing eye to eye on this. We're looking at the problem and seeing the other person standing behind it. And that goes, can go both ways. You can, in, a, in a marriage, you cannot let the trial come between you. You've got to stay on the same side, looking at it. There'll be a little bit different angle, and that's important. But men and women coming together to see it in 3D, right? Proper depth perception. But don't let it become between you. Both of you can approach this with faith in God and faith in each other's best, best interest. Okay? So notice how it happens in chapter 5. At the end of verse 1, it says that she had mourned because of us. She's already suffering through the funeral. Okay? She, th- she thinks they're gone. Notice the next verse. For she had supposed that we had perished in the wilderness. There's that catastrophizing I mentioned a moment ago. She had also complained against my father, telling him that he was a visionary man. So, unfortunately, saying the same thing that Laman and Lemuel had been thinking themselves, and to complain against him, and then pay close attention to the pronouns she uses. Behold, thou, you, thou, not God, thou hast led us forth from the land of our inheritance. It's sad that in her worst moment, she morphs into Laman. It's our inheritance. We've left it behind. I can't believe I went along with this crazy idea. You visionary man. Why did you have to say that? Dreamer? And now our sons are dead because I listened to you? Notice she says, we've left the land of our inheritance. That's the plural pronoun. We both lost a bunch of stuff, but my sons are no more. And we perish in the wilderness. So I'm with you in losing all that we have. I'm with you in dying here alongside you. But those were my boys my sons are no more and after this manner of language had my mother complained against my father like i said i i think i do not think less of soraya at all in this moment there's such raw reality here this is mama bear coming out and i've seen mama bear come out of my wife towards me when we were approaching difficult challenges from different perspectives That's why I've learned we can't let it become against one another. We got to stay on the same side. But it's so interesting to complain about visionary people. If you aren't that type and you just can't understand why anyone would do something without some empirically provable point. As a kid once, my mom said, said to me, son, I know you wanted to have a sleepover with a friend so you could go out and toilet paper. My mom actually had no problem with us toilet papering. It was a kinder, gentler day back then. I mean, we were donating toilet paper to people. During COVID, that would have been a blessing, right? I mean, she'd drive the getaway vehicle half the time. It was totally fine. But for some reason that night, she said, I I don't want you to have a friend over and I don't want you guys to toilet paper. And I was like, why? That's the age old question for a child, right? I was an early teenager, probably in junior high. Like, come on, mom, why? You're usually fine with it. She said, I know, but I don't know. Tonight, I don't feel good about it. And inside, I'm all, oh, you don't feel good about it. I've got a visionary mother, and the foolish imaginations of her heart are keeping me from having fun. Come on, whatever. So I pretended to be the obedient, dutiful son. I said, okay, thank you, Mom. Of course, I'll just stay here. And I did stay there for a while until I snuck out of my window and had planned it all out with my friend. And we met up in the middle of the night and ran down to the grocery store and bought our toilet paper. I don't know why they sell teenagers toilet paper in, at midnight and beyond. But we headed off to go have our fun. And there in the shadows of kind of these back roads and the paseos they were called, these little sidewalks that connect to different parts of the neighborhoods, we got jumped by a couple of drunk college students. And to see my buddy get beaten in the face as I stood just scared to death in the the bushes until the girlfriends of these drunk guys calmed them down and said, they're just kids, leave them alone. What? And then me to try to stop my friend's mouth from bleeding and realizing that I need help with this It's scary to get jumped when you're in junior high. And especially when we lived closest to the scene of the crime, it's a horrible feeling to ring your own doorbell at 1 a.m. And let your mom know that you weren't home like you said you would be. Because you didn't trust the feeling of a visionary woman. Sorry, Mom. For us to learn to value the spiritual gifts of other people. To trust in someone else's divine connection. Instead of demanding, like Laman did, how? How's God going to do this? Instead of expecting, come on, honey, you didn't have any good reason for us to leave everything. And now my sons are dead. My sons. And how how does Lehi respond? This is the part that blows me away when my wife ever reaches her breaking point, I can only pray I'll be a Lehi for her. Because what does Lehi say? Verse 4, came to pass that my father spake unto her, saying, I know. I know that I am a visionary man. Which is the long way of saying, you're right, honey. Just to, again, I don't want to be on opposite sides of this. So if you're looking at it from that angle, I am too. Let me come around the table and sit right alongside you. Let me put my arm around you. So we're looking at the same thing from the same angle. You are completely correct, honey. I am a visionary man. Guilty as charged. But let me tell you why that's such a good thing. For if I had not seen the things of God in a vision, I should not have known the goodness of God, but had tarried at Jerusalem and had perished with my brethren. Interesting, he still refers to his old persecutors. As his brethren. He didn't think he was any better than they were. But he knew that obedience was required of him. Which is why he left. It was his goodness. Even if you go back to 1 Nephi and see some of his praise when he has the vision and reads the book. He praises God for his justice right alongside his mercy. There's something powerful about his perception of God. It's amazing. But here, what else does he say to his distraught wife? I love this. But behold, I have obtained a land of promise. Notice the verb tense there. I have obtained it. What? We're only a couple weeks or a month out of Jerusalem. We're so far away from the promised land. It's years from now. She doesn't know that yet. Neither does he. But as far as he's concerned, done deal. I have obtained the land of promise. Faith allows us to speak of the future in the past tense. That's incredible. Talk about a positive attitude in the present because of his faith in the future. He says, in the which things I do rejoice. So I I can already celebrate present attitude because of future promise that I can now treat as if it were past. Yea, I know. How's this for his testimony? I know that the Lord will deliver my sons out of the hands of Laban. Now catch the verb tense there. Will deliver. Hasn't happened yet as far as I know. We have no evidence yet, but I know it will come. But I'm not going to wait for proof to justify my positive attitude. I'm going to experience joy in the meantime, because I know what God will do. For who? Not just your sons, my sons. They're mine as much as they are yours, honey. I'm, on, I'm with you on this. So my sons, don't forget that I care about them as much as you do, even if we have different perspectives or approaches in raising them. They're my boys too. And God will deliver my sons out of the hands of Laban and bring them down again unto us in the wilderness. So he took her, my, countered it with his, my, and ended it with an us. We're in this together, honey. And I'm sorry it's been so hard for you, but please believe. What's amazing here is the next two verses, notice 6 and 7. After this manner of language did my father Lehi comfort my mother Sariah concerning us. While we journeyed in the wilderness up to the land of Jerusalem to obtain the record of the Jews. And when we had returned to the tent of my father. However long that took. However much time passed between verse 6 and 7. I don't know. But when we finally returned, behold their joy was full and my mother was comforted. Did you see the repetition of the word comfort? In verse 6, it was a comfort of something yet to come. In verse 7, it was comfort fulfilled because the boys were back. I, I love that she was willing to be comforted, to a certain point at least, because of her, her husband's faith. And that can be comforting. Hopefully, it's just enough comfort to get us through until the ultimate comfort finally comes. When the promise is finally fulfilled, we can hold on to both kinds of comfort as well. And then notice what she says in verse 8. She spake saying, now I know. You kept saying, I know before. Well, now I know after. Maybe she's a little more like Sam. That I didn't, it was hard for, I I was a good Sam when I left Jerusalem. Okay, I'm not going to complain I know we're leaving all these things behind and life in the wilderness is going to be different for a mother than for a father. This is going to be hard, but I went along with it. Trusting you. Well, I guess at some point it's not enough to trust in somebody else's words. I had to know for myself and now she does. Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath commanded my husband to flee into the wilderness. This wasn't his idea. It wasn't his visionary dream. This was God. Yea, I also know of a surety, that was that same strong testimony, that the Lord hath protected my sons. It wasn't just Nephi's oh, street smarts. God is behind all of this. She has come to know him through her extremity. So God, the Lord hath protected my sons and delivered them out of the hands of Laban and given them power, whereby they could accomplish the thing which the Lord hath commanded them. This is mom's version of 1 Nephi 3.7. Almost exactly the way Nephi said it. Mom is now saying it in her own words. And she's recognizing that God's behind it all. It's not my crazy husband. (laughs) This is exactly the life the Lord would have us lead. And so I'll take it. Now, my friends, the way it goes from there, the end of chapter (laughs) 5, in some ways it seems like stereotypical mom and dad mom's so concerned about the children anytime i missed curfew mom was always the one that was freaking out and dad was like "Ah, eh, they'll be fine yeah uh, it's kind of that way with my wife and i as well and it, at, well mom is so freaking out about the sons as soon as they come back and she's comforted and she's rejoicing and her joy is full it's like yes my boys and she just picture her falling them falling all over them kissing them whereas dad's like boys good to see you where's the book where's the plates That's like, I knew you'd come back. The question is, do you have the plates that I sent you there for? Or excuse me, that God sent you there for? That's what I want. And it says that as soon as he got his hands on them, he did search them from the beginning. Can you picture him pouring over the pages of the brass plates? Learning about creation and fall. Israelite history. Prophecy of prophets. All the way up to Jeremiah's day. I mean, they kept this stuff up to date. It's amazing what was on there. But then notice the final words regarding it. This is the end of chapter 5. Look at verse 20 through 22. We'll end here. And it came to pass that thus far I and my father had kept the commandments wherewith the Lord had commanded us. You see, it always comes back to obedience for this, this father and this son. We've kept the commandments. The Lord was the source behind them. We had obtained the records which the Lord had commanded us. There's that word again. And searched them and found that they were desirable yea, even of great worth unto us, insomuch that we could preserve the commandments of the Lord unto our children. Wherefore, and here's Nephi's final takeaway, it was wisdom in the Lord that we should carry them with us as we journeyed in the wilderness towards the land of promise. This is a perfect conclusion to this part of the story, these preliminary pages of the Book of Mormon you got a book in hand. What do you think it's worth? Here they discover it is desirable. Well, there's an understatement. It's of great worth. Well, how much? Can we quantify that? Well, how about a one-month journey, give or take? How about two near-death experiences? How about some conflict within the family? How about loss of all possessions? A major beating? An angelic Intervention? a haunting death. Was it worth it, Nephi? And to his dying day, he would say, yes, it was. It's worth it to obey. It's worth it to obtain Scripture and allow the Lord to continue to teach us through his words. In some ways, we are left, rest- we've got a lot to wrestle with by the time we're done with this first week of Book of Mormon study. We've got to wrestle with how do we respond to prophetic words? Do I, how do I continue my lessons from the Lord instead of ringing the bell early? How do I navigate family life when people come just wired differently? How am I going to come to know God for what he's really like? Will I obey come what may? And what will I do with God's Word? I've still got 50 weeks ahead of me studying this year, so will I consider it wisdom in God that I carry the Book of Mormon with me in my journey through life's wilderness? That's something worth holding on to every step of the way. I testify of that, my friends. And I pray that we can prove to God however he asks us to how much we value his word we get lots of opportunities moving forward to give him that kind of proof now I started a tradition in the letters of Paul I, we'll see how this goes please weigh in in the, in the comments to let me know if this is something that's helpful to you but I just wanted to leave you with some incredible one liners One year, I went through the Book of Mormon studying. I wanted to find at least one one one-liner on every single page. A one-liner that was oh, rich enough that you could make a whole church talk based with that one-liner as a title. Elder Maxwell used to do that all the time, and that inspired me. Um, That was a good year of scripture study as well. I'm going to give you a bunch of them. And maybe as we try to aim for shorter lessons, again, I failed miserably today, but as we aim for shorter lessons and you have a little more time to do some fishing yourself, let me just point out some spots on the lake that are worth casting your nets. Or let me point to a few phrases in scripture that if you'll drop your line and think and ponder and pray and write and praise and share and everything else Lehi did in chapter one, then you might find some treasure within as well. So by way of review, having seen many afflictions in the course of my days, nevertheless having been highly favored of the Lord in all my days. As he read, he was filled with the Spirit of the Lord. Because thou art merciful, thou wilt not suffer those who come unto thee that they shall perish. Plates which I have made with mine own hands. The tender mercies of the Lord are over all those whom he hath chosen because of their faith to make them mighty even unto the power of deliverance. We'll come back to that one next week, I promise. He was obedient unto the word of the Lord. Therefore he did as the Lord commanded him. Continually running into the fountain of all righteousness. Firm and steadfast and immovable in keeping the commandments of the Lord. They did murmur because they knew not the dealings of that God who had created them. Blessed art thou because of thy faith, for thou hast sought me diligently with lowliness of heart. I have not required it of them, but it is a commandment of the Lord." I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded. The Lord giveth no commandments unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way for them. As the Lord liveth, we will not go down. It is wisdom in God that we should obtain these records. Let us be strong like unto Moses. Wherefore can ye doubt? And I was led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things which I should do. It is better that one man should perish than that a nation should dwindle and perish in unbelief. I did obey the voice of the Spirit. When Zoram had made an oath unto us, our fears did cease concerning him. If I had not seen the things of God in a vision, I should not have known the goodness of God. I know that the Lord will deliver my sons and bring them down again unto us. And we had obtained the records which the Lord had commanded us and searched them and found that they were desirable, yea, even of great worth unto us. Wherefore, it was wisdom in the Lord that we should carry them with us as we journeyed in the wilderness toward the land of promise. My dear friends, I am honored to join you on this journey. As we aim for our Father, as we wend our way through the wilderness, knowing that there's a promised land ahead, I testify that these words are worth everything. It is wisdom in God that we bring them with us. And so thank you for joining me thus far and prepare yourself for yet many lessons ahead because a God who expects big things of us will provide ways for us to accomplish all that he has in mind. You can bank on that. He said so.